0: Five truths about Jesus. That's what we're going over. Let's just start everything over here. Um, And we've been covering then uh, the fact last week that Jesus actually existed. Part of that was covering uh, the issue that Jesus um, still is somewhere uh, right now. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So the creed proclaims and it gets that from Scripture. But uh, the fact that there was actually a historical Jesus, a Jesus in history, who actually was here on planet Earth, and some people have questioned that. Uh, Even in the recent past, it's been questioned uh, many times uh, since about the mid-1800s, but it's been questioned uh, recently again. Historically speaking, it appears that historically there was a Jesus. That's how it turns out. Now, we have the testimony of Scripture, and we stand here assuming that this is true, which is my assumption this morning as well. So what we get here is a testimony of somebody who actually lived and actually did something real that affects the lives of you and me. That's where we started. Now, this week we're going to continue on in this progression of thought and talk about the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God. He claimed to be divine, and he actually is. That's the testimony that we get from Scripture. And, and I, I've stated, and I started last week and challenged you to memorize Second 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to stand before God as one approved, a worker who is not ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And I hope some of you have taken that challenge because part of the issue here isn't just to have some academic exercise where we stand before you and I would give some kind of a lecture on Jesus and, and all the different points. We're not doing that. We could do that. We're not doing that in this particular case. We're giving some thumbnail sketches from Scripture with minor apologetic moments to point out some of these basic entry-level fundamental beliefs that we hold within the church based on Scripture. And so to say, do your best to stand before God as one approved and and who's not ashamed of this, who's correctly going to handle all of this, it tells us that we're supposed to respond to this. And respond in a particular way and do something with the information, not just academically know this. So it's supposed to do something to our faith to cover all of this. Now, our faith, as it turns out, hangs on eyewitness testimony That's a lot of what we get, especially in the New Testament. As you look at the Gospels, as you look at what goes on in the book of Acts, we have this eyewitness testimony. There are apologists out there, those who defend the faith, who've done a good job uh, for years of talking about how these are reliable eyewitness sources. Uh, A great one that I'll recommend to you is J. Warner Wallace out right now, cold case detective out of Los Angeles. I don't know if you've listened to any of his stuff, read any of his stuff. Very interesting. He's done some great work. And he works with eyewitness testimony. He said, what if I apply this to Scripture? What happens? He says, this seems reliable. And he himself was coming from the point of an atheist uh, for a long time when he finally heard Scripture opened. And he said, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like mythology. This sounds like what I deal with at work. Eyewitness testimony. And then he came to know Christ. So there are people out there who have done pretty, some very good work to look at what we have in Scripture and say there's something reliable there. Whether you want to acknowledge the truth of Scripture yet or not, there's something reliable there to to go on. And so today we're going to look at the testimony primarily of John, from the book of John, the gospel of John, in just a couple places uh, to get our thumbnail sketch of who Jesus claims to be. And then we're left with the question, not a three-point sermon. We're not left with a whole lot of other things except the question, who did Jesus claim to be and what do you do with that? Do you believe him? Do you believe he said he was who he was? And do you believe the claims that he made? And as I've said, the assumption I'm making through this whole sermon series is the assumption I make every week. Scripture is true. It's God's word to us. God revealing himself to us. It's not a human book written to humans by humans. But God gave us what we have in Scripture. Now, we're going to look at John 5, 16 through 18. So just a couple verses. That's the the passage we're going to revolve around this morning. I'll bring in a couple others. They'll come up on the screen. Um, As we go along And forgive me but I'll bring one passage in from Matthew later on So mostly John 1 Matthew John 5 16 through 18 Jesus is standing before the religious leaders And it says this So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath The Jewish leaders began to persecute him In his defense Jesus said to them My father is always at his work To this very day And I too am working For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's back up so we get what's happening here. So because Jesus was doing these things, let's make sure we know what these things were. Up until this point in the Gospel of John, we've been told about some things that were in the more private or quarantined uh, healings or miracles that Jesus did. But then, right before this passage, Jesus heals two people very publicly and very publicly on the Sabbath. That's a problem, right? And, and so the, the one right before this is a man who wasn't able to walk for about three decades. And, and Jesus even asks him, you can go back and read it. He says, well, do you want to get well? It's a fascinating question. It's a fascinating passage uh, to, to read through. And what the religious leaders get the man for, they don't seem to be concerned that he's actually walking after being unable to walk for most of his life. They're concerned that he's carrying his mat or his mattress, some of your translations might say, same thing, on the Sabbath day, which was unlawful on the Sabbath. They're very concerned about that. Okay, that's great that you were healed, but don't carry your mat on the Sabbath, for goodness sakes. Who did this to you, they said. And he didn't even realize, so he has to go back and find out. And then he finds out it's Jesus, and then they come after Jesus to say, okay, what gives you the right, basically? Who do you think you are? They're angry at him for breaking Sabbath law, which is no small deal. We'll just say that. And and some of your translations might say that they began persecuting him, or they started. Some just say they were persecuting him, basically, at that point. Already by this point, Jesus, in the book of John, we've been told, has gone into the temple and flipped the tables over which is really the big decisive moment that gets everybody angry at him that's going to be angry at him. There are other moments that will come, but that's, that's one of the big things that scholars look back and say, well, that was the thing that did it. They were after him from that point. So they're already after him, however your, your translation says it. It doesn't matter if it's beginning or just going on. Appear, it appears that they were already trying to get him and pin him down. And here they have their chance. And what does he say? We're not going to dissect all of his words, but he does say a couple things that are worth our noting right now. And that is my father is at work and I, too, am working. He's putting himself in the same category of work. But even so, what really bothers them is that in that day, the way that you started prayer or speaking about our father is that way. Like we learn in the the Lord's prayer. Our father. You don't say my father. Those were both tip offs. Jesus was making a claim and they caught it. So they were angry at him first and foremost that he healed somebody on the Sabbath. How could he? But now they're angry at him because of blasphemy. He's claimed to be God or on equal plane with God. They catch it. And the church from early on, uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and after he ascends, they tried to figure out within Christian history, how do we figure out what to do with this? And so we have what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm not going to go into all of that for you right now, but I am going to say this. People still struggle with this today. Was Jesus divine or not? We proclaim in the church and we rest on scripture to say that he was fully God and fully human. Somehow there's something mystery, mysterious about how that works, but he's fully God. We heard it in Colossians. God put his fullness in him. There's not an ounce of God that's not there. He's fully God. And yet, and yet he's fully human. It is a divine mystery. We're never going to understand the fullness of that. But in Christian history, early on, in about the mid-200s into the early 300s, there was a, a big controversy that went on over something called Arianism, by a guy named Arius, where uh, they argued over one Greek vowel. And you can imagine how this went down. But they, uh, was it homoousion know, or homoousioi? And you say, well, what's the big deal? Was Jesus of the same substance or of similar substance to God? Was he divine or was he created? And just barely under God as a created being. Higher than people, higher than angels, higher than all of that, but not he was created. He had a beginning point. This was a big deal. And if you read the Nicene Creed, it was at the first council of Nicaea that they finally came to a decision on this and said, we look at scripture and we see that Jesus was, in fact, God. That's who he claimed to be. That's who we proclaim him to be. And by and large, that Arian understanding of things faded out largely within the church. There were pockets that held onto it and still do even to this day. And, and it came to a head, really, in that early 300s, um, and all came to a head of the council. But, but one early uh, person that really went after this was a guy named Athanasius. He was a bishop. And he made the claims, of course, on Scripture, but he also made the claim that only God can save. Jesus obviously saves, and so Jesus must have been God. He also made the claim that, clearly, we worship Jesus. So we either have a problem that we're worshiping a created being, or he really is God. I'll say more about that in just a little bit. He argued this, and we can still have this, and Terry, can you hit the slide up here? We still can have this sort of swing that people will tend to one side of that without realizing it, that maybe Jesus wasn't fully God. Maybe Jesus wasn't divine at all, some will even say in our day and age. It hasn't really gone away in some pockets. The other side of the spectrum, just so I've put it out there, is some people have this belief that Jesus was, or Jesus was only God. Right? And one of the early heresies that comes in is a thing called docetism, that he appeared like God, that he walked just a little bit above the ground um, and, and had all the appearance, but he wasn't actually human. That we have to affirm, and the church has stated this for a long time, that we have to affirm that Jesus is fully God and fully human. That's what Scripture is telling us, but also only God does have the power to save. And Jesus has to be fully human because the testimony of Scripture tells us he became like one of us so that he could use that power to save, so that it would actually do something for you and for me. And so Jesus makes these claims over and over that only point to his divinity, that he is, in fact, God. And the question becomes, what do we do with that? C.S. Lewis is the one who's famous for stating this, I think, uh, very well in Mere Christianity. I've used it before, uh, but he says, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. Have you heard this before? We hear this all the time. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Lewis says a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I think he lays out very well what Jesus, in fact, lays out for his own disciples and for all who would come after. Who do you say I am? Jesus makes claims, and his claims are, are revealed throughout Scripture of the power that he has to fulfill those claims that show who he is. I, I do believe this is a present issue, the, the issue of the divinity of Jesus. We do run into pro- times where people talk about Jesus being a great moral teacher. I've run into that, where people say that I'm not willing to accept anything further than that. That would be silly. Um, Interestingly, uh, I just read this story, the the case of on January 8th of this year in a Scottish church. um, So that would be in Scotland. uh, On Epiphany, January 8th, uh, during communion, uh, the church invited in, church leaders invited in a Muslim singer to read Surah 19 of the Quran during communion, which says Jesus is not divine very clearly which also says Jesus talked as a baby, which is very interesting. But it says that Jesus was not divine. Read during Christian worship, during communion, which communion proclaims Jesus' divinity. It's an interesting time that we live in, and the church leaders seem to have no problem with it. They said it was just interfaith dialogue. I'm okay with interfaith dialogue. That's not interfaith dialogue. And we probably wouldn't see the reverse, would we? Somebody being invited in to, say, to read something that says Muhammad is not the prophet. We wouldn't see the reverse. I remember preaching about this particular topic a couple churches ago and somebody coming up to me afterwards and saying, you need to stop preaching that Jesus is God because he wasn't. I'm telling you, it's a present issue that's out there. People want to deny the divinity of Jesus, and we hear it at every turn or more and more. But we have testimony in Scripture that proclaims something different. John, in writing his gospel, proclaims in the the first 12 books of the gospel of John, they're typically called the book of signs. They're pointing to what Jesus is doing, showing the things that verify his claims to be Christ. Read those first 12 books, you get an impression. But right off, in the gospel of John, he kicks it off uh, with a pretty bold statement about who Jesus is. In John 1, starting at verse 1, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was like God." Was sort of God? Was of the same substance? No, he said the word was God. He's making a bold statement right away. He was with God in the beginning. John goes on, he says, Through him all things were made. We heard the same testimony in Colossians 1 this morning. He's, He's the creative force behind it. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. That is, we have life because of him. And that life was the light of all mankind. Those are bold statements about who Jesus is and who we're about to be introduced to in the Gospel of John. He goes on. He says that he came to his own. His own did not receive him. To those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh. Here's the mystery of it all. Somehow the divine took on human flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God pitched his tent with us as humans. He has the power to save and he said, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it by becoming like one of you. That's the testimony that John gives us. That the word was, but really the word is, God. Others recognize and testify to Jesus' divinity as well in Scripture. Uh, John the Baptist points that way, and it takes him a little while to kind of figure out the fullness of what, co- what's going on. So he's saying, uh, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We covered that a couple weeks ago. But it, even when he doubts, he finally gets a testimony, just like we get in the, the book of signs in John 1 through 12, of what Jesus is actually up to. And it confirms that something deeper and bigger is going on here than just what a prophet would do. There's something more at play here. The disciples themselves end up in a conundrum trying to figure out who Jesus is when they're sitting in a boat on a storm and Jesus calms the storm because the only person who can calm or the only thing that can calm the weather and nature like that is God. And all of a sudden they're sitting in the boat with somebody who appears more than who they thought he was. There's a testimony right there. But then even further, you see this temple incident and others like it. That we just read from John 5, where Jesus makes a claim and the people in the crowd, those religious leaders, they get it. He didn't just claim to be like God, a prophet, an anointed one. He claimed to be divine, or at least on the same level. And if you're on the same level, what are you but divine? He made that bold claim. Others recognize that Jesus is making these claims that elevate him beyond just the status of prophet or anointed king. Jesus himself makes that claim, right? It's not just that the people in the crowd that are ready to kill him say, oh, oh, we think he made that claim. He says, my father, clearly. And he puts his work on the same level. In John 10, we get one of the more sort of overt moments where Jesus makes the claim, among others. and, And this is the Bible I use for preaching. John 10, 30 is the only passage I have marked in the whole Bible because Jesus makes this claim. It's one of those bold moments where he talks about, my sheep know my voice. In, in John ten twenty five 25 and, and following, he says, My father knows who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. In verse 30, he says it. I and the father are one. Puts himself on equal plane. As if it wasn't clear enough, then he goes on and he talks starting at verse 36. He says, What about the one whom my father sent or set apart as his very own sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? The crowd got it. Jesus reiterates it. I said it. Do you believe me unless I do the works of my Father? But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, it says they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. It's hard to believe that Jesus doesn't know what he's doing at these points. The crowd seems to have a clue. Jesus seems to know he reiterates at these points. And he even makes other claims that we read when he makes the I am statements in the gospel. I am the bread of life, right? I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Even when he says before Abraham, I was there before Abraham, I am. He makes these statements. and You start to put the whole case together. It's hard to believe that he didn't know what he was doing. It's hard to believe that he didn't have a clue that he was over and over and over again, both making the verbal claim and evidencing that he was divine, that he was, in fact, God. He claimed to be God over and over. And the question that lies before us is what's your conclusion about that? That's what Jesus leaves us with. I said, uh, give me a chance to get into Matthew for just a moment. I'm just going to read two verses from there. Right before the... The Great Commission, those sort of final words of Jesus. In Matthew twenty-eight sixteen and 17, so Jesus has now been resurrected. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And verse 17 says something rather shocking. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Over and over and over and over in the Old Testament, faith that these disciples would have been steeped in. You do not worship anything but God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, we read in Deuteronomy 6. Tell this to your kids. Don't worship anything else. They went into exile because they were worshiping other things and learned their lesson. Don't worship anything else. No idol, no nothing. And they had finally figured it out. And what do they do? They worship him That tells you that Jesus made some claims and they were verified and the disciples said, we figured it out. You don't worship anything else but God, as it turns out, and they worshiped him. We're left with the question, who do we say Jesus actually is at that point? The implications of of all of this we're just going to continue on as we go through the sermon series with the implications that Jesus, in fact, saves, that Jesus redeems. That's where this goes. Jesus, in fact, has the power to do that, that nobody else, nothing else has the power to do. But I'll tell you, um, I continue to bring this up, and, and this was all from, you know, the Barna study we talked about, which I can bring up in a moment again. But I, I've heard even from pulpits, people try and water this down. I hear it in people's lives sometimes where they try and water it down. We don't want to admit that Jesus is divine because then it had implications. I I listened to a sermon from a prominent preacher from down south of us recently, uh, an Easter sermon where he simply said the cross, uh, Jesus probably died on the cross and was buried in a grave, and the resurrection is a metaphor. Well, you can do whatever you want with it at that point, can't you? You can make it a metaphor for pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. But there's historical verifiability of all of this that happened. You can actually go back and study this and figure out that it is. Plus, Scripture tells us. I stand on that. I hope you do too. But the implications are you water it down at that point. If, If it's just a metaphor, big deal. I read even from a pastor in town here a sermon that said, Jesus proclaims he's the way, the truth, and the life. That's a pretty bold statement from Jesus of who he is and what he can do. But the pastor went on to say, but then you may wonder about your Buddhist or your Hindu or your Muslim neighbor. What about them? They're left out by all of this. What Jesus meant was, and here you go, I am the way, the truth, and the life to my disciples. But to everybody else that wants another way, I am a way, a truth, a life. Well, then he's no longer divine, is he? Now there are implications to this when we come to Jesus and we see that he 's divine, and you see he did what he did and he said what he said and he died and he rose again, there are implications that we can 't get around, and we can 't just water it down and try and make it what we want. Jesus made bold claims, and yet we live in a country, and here 's where those Barna statistics that I brought to you last week bring us to, to further to recognizing what Jesus said. We live in a country where uh, a good number of people uh, believe that Jesus existed, but only about half of the people now at this point are sure that Jesus uh, was really God. About half the people are either unsure or they're definitely sure that Jesus wasn't God. Yet, most Americans have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. What are we committing to? Now, Jesus said what he said. He, he made the claims. He said he was God. He has the power, in fact, to save us. And so the question we're left is, who do you say that he is? And the only way we know that is when we encounter who he is in the word and respond accordingly. So this comes back to our Second Timothy passage again. Do your best to stand before God as one approved, a worker who is not ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. When we begin to correctly handle the word of truth, we encounter the claims of Jesus, who he is, what he did, and we begin to discover the implications of what that means for you and for me. We don't water it down. We live it out, unashamed, standing before God as one approved. Let's pray. Father, may the reality of your Son, Jesus Christ, be full in our lives. May the implications of the salvation that we can receive and the redemption of all things be fulfilled in us. And because of that, may we be a testimony of your goodness that you've shown through Jesus Christ, not simply as some example, but as somebody who actually affects real heart change and renovation in us who actually changes us from the inside out not that we would pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps but we would be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit and then able to testify to those around us about that life changing power that only you can provide Father we want to stand before you as those who are approved as those who have turned ourselves over to you we are not trying to do this life on our own. But who follow your son Jesus Christ as our head. As the one who leads the way. Father, may we find ourselves in your care today. Recognizing today even fuller the implications of what your son has done for us. To live out the I am statements that your son says I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to you. And Father, when we surrender to that, we receive living water food that satisfies, and we will be changed forever. And we can stand in your presence forever and ever and enjoy it. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.